0: Good afternoon and thank you all for joining today's Rockefeller Capital Management Special Client Event entitled Reinventing Today's Global and U.S. Economies. Today's event is the 13th in our series and will be a conversation between Greg Fleming and Jim McNerney, former Chairman, President and CEO of the Boeing Company. Without further ado, please allow me to introduce our President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. Good afternoon to clients of Rockefeller. To our colleagues at Rockefeller and to friends of Rockefeller Capital Management. And as Tom said, welcome to our 13th in this special series we've been running since the beginning of the COVID 19 crisis. Uh, particularly pleased to have Jim McNerney with us here today. We're going to have a broad ranging dialogue on a great set of substantive topics given all that Jim's done with his career. I want to uh, spend a, a minute or two up front just highlighting uh, the things that uh, have taken place over the course of the career that Jim McNerney's had. And it is uh, and uh, has been and remains an amazing career. Uh, He's worked at or led some of the greatest companies in the history of the corporate world. Early on, he worked with Procter & Gamble, McKinsey, and then General Electric, where he spent nearly 20 years in a series of top executive positions. He joined 3M as chairman and CEO in 2000, and he ran that $20 billion global technology company for five years when he left to become chairman, president and CEO of Boeing. Over the next 10 plus years, he helped Boeing recapture its position as the most dominant multinational company, one of the most dominant multinational companies in the world, selling airplanes, rockets, satellites, telecommunication equipment, and missiles globally. In 2015, his last year as CEO, revenues at Boeing approached $100 billion. Jim has received countless awards for leadership, including being named 2015 CEO of the Year. Presidents, Democratic and Republican, have called on him for leadership. President Obama named Jim to serve on the Kennedy Center Board of Trustees, and on the president's export council. President Trump named Jim a member of his strategic advisory board. Jim remains active today, serving as a senior advisor to Clayton DeBillier and Rice, a director of Procter and Gamble, a trustee of Northwestern University, among many other things. On top of all of this, he started his career as an undergraduate at Yale, and he got his MBA from Harvard University. Jim, uh, good afternoon and welcome, great to have you here.
1: Greg, uh, it's wonderful wonderful to be with you, and uh, you read the introduction just as I wrote it. thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's actually not true, and I know you weren't <laughs> short-circuited, which is why I didn't give you a chance. <laughs> so, Jim, we've got uh, so much that we can talk about, given the career that you've had, and honestly, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, Procter & Gamble, McKinsey, General Electric, 3M, and Boeing, it's not an overstatement on my side to say these are some of the greatest names in the history of the corporate entity uh, in this country and around the world. So you know, with that kind of backdrop, uh, the insight that you can bring on the business landscape today and the impact of geopolitics is enormous. So maybe we can start um, by talking about uh, the world today and um, you know how this era uh, looks different maybe than the one you worked in primarily and we may be heading in a direction that's different than, you know, the the last uh, several decades. Even frankly, the post World War II order.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's true, Greg. Uh, the at the geopolitical level, the the world that all global companies have to operate within, there's been huge change. I mean, I think uh, as we emerged from World War uh, Two. I think we all realized uh, at the country level that we needed to cooperate together. We couldn't let the, the fractionated world that led into World War One and that which led immediately into World War II, continue to exist. We set up all kinds of multilateral in- institutions to sort of lubricate the natural differences between countries. Uh, uh, often, multilateral institutions, uh, everything from the uh, IMF to the W to the who- uh, to the UN and there was just a feeling of if we all cooperated together set up broad trade agreements uh, as well as broad military treaties that we we would have a common purpose on a global basis and I think that that has really lasted until the uh, until the tr- trump era where I think and it's and I'm not blaming the president, Uh, uh, but there's, there's a sort of a broad trend across the developed and developing world to go it along. Uh, uh, Nationalism, uh, the uh, uh, the the natural populism that's associated with nationalism is is on the rise. Uh, Multilateral institutions, the one that kept us stitched together in a in a predictable way whether it's interest rates or trade agreements are beginning to fall away. Uh, uh, the president has just announced we're, we're going to depart from the WHO as just a, an example of this and so it's a different world we're going to operate in and and companies and countries are going to have to adapt and I I, I I tend to be one who think we're going to be dealing with this era era for a while.
0: You know, Jim, uh, one of the things that that lead, it leads to lots of follow-on, which I'll, 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 I'll get to, but um, one of the first things that would uh, be interesting to get your views on, given uh, in particular Boeing, but even 3M, uh, impact of all of this on global supply chains. There's been a lot of discussion yeah. uh, since the, uh, the beginning of COVID-19 that supply chains in, in the United States would come closer to home. You know, Originally, the notion was, you know, maybe out of China and into other places in, in Asia and Southeast Asia, but maybe it's much closer to, to home than that. How do you see global supply chains changing now uh, in the next, uh, not just the near term, but over the next five, 10 years and out?
1: Well, I think there, I think this trend that I've described will, will have an impact on supply chains. I mean, globally deployed supply chains depend on a common regulatory view, depend on A reassurance that one country is going to uh, uh, be be comfortable with the global deployment of assets and people and product into other countries Uh, and the extent to which we're in an environment now where there's suspicion and nationalism that's injected into that equation I think there will there there will be some impact particularly in those product areas uh, that are deemed strategic I mean I think oil uh, uh, I think defense products uh, have historically had some of those strictures on the supply chain side, oil more recently, uh, and now medical products are being discussed in terms of uh, should, should we allow globally de- deployed supply chains when during moments of stress may not be available to us uh, and it may bleed into others. But, you know, the, the benefits of global supply chain should not be forgotten here. I mean, the uh, the cost and uh, service advantages that accrue uh, to one to one country doing what it does best uh, and another country doing what it do- does best, the so-called comparative advantage yields tremendous uh, efficiencies. Uh, and so I don't think all supply chains are going to rein in. Uh, the, I mean, th- there's the apocryphal Walmart example in terms of... Uh, all all of the products that are sourced uh, into Walmart from around the world that provide huge cost advantages uh, to uh, global consumer to uh, U.S. consumers, and I don't think those are, I, I think those won't be given up easily. So there'll be there'll be some impact in some of the more strategic product areas.
0: Yeah. Now, do you think um, when when you start looking at it, uh country by country and regionally, do, do you think uh, you know you'll have supply chains pulled back and that you know, for essential products, you know, as you said, medicine, you know, a lot of discussion around antibiotics and how many yeah. of our antibiotics are not made here. And, you know, down to something as simple as mass or basic as masks. Are Is every region going to make its own version of all those things now?
1: Well, I think I don't think it'll go all the way to that, but I think countries like the United States uh, or like certain European countries are, are going to are going to get to a point where they want to have buffer supply and buffer capacity that's available during a traumatic dislocation like we're experiencing now. I think it will get down to that rather than a complete uh, severing of supply chain relationships. Uh, I mean, over half of the medical devices, you know, we're now focused on pharmaceuticals and, and vaccines. But on the medical device side, uh, over half come from outside the United States, and and uh, a ventilator, for example, is a medical device. And so I think there's going to be a jiggery, but I think it'll get down to buffer stocks and reserve capacity uh, before it gets down to completely breaking. There's just too many advantages that, on on cost and and capability that are, that accrue to a global supply chain.
0: Yeah. And obviously, in the companies that you ran, you, you live those advantages. Yeah, you know, you know Boeing manufacture. I don't know how many countries in the world does Boeing manufacture different parts of products in. It's got to be, you know. Oh, it's a
1: huge it's a huge number. I mean, I you know uh, over half the airplane is sourced from uh, places other than the U.S. Uh, although the, the the thing that makes the airplane most competitive, uh, we re- the more engineering intensive stuff tends to reside here.
0: Yeah. So, Jim, let's go to a topic that uh, is a topic everybody's focused on now. And uh, the president said today that uh, I believe I'm, I'm quoting it accurately, where he was not optimistic on phase two of a trade deal with China. Uh, you know, so this, you know, the topic is relations between the U.S. and China. Um, you lived there in China uh, pre the handover of Hong Kong. Uh, and... Um, uh did a tremendous amount of business with the chinese over many years and the different uh, leadership roles you were in so you have a lot of insight into the the chinese the government the way they think the way they negotiate we've got a lot of challenges in the system now between the us and china how what are your views on 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 the relationship today and how it moves forward and you know maybe even how we get it back on track
1: yeah i mean i the relationship with China now is is about as bad as I've seen it in 50 years. I mean, it is very since basically the reopening of China. It's very difficult. Uh, the, you know, the fundamental differences between our cultures and values and politics are sort of laid bare at this stage. I mean, and uh, there is a an incompatibility that you've got to look beyond if you're going to get along with each other. And uh right now we have an inability to look beyond some of this stuff and uh you know we've tried two ways to deal with china constructively uh, and we have to deal with them constructively they're too big can't ignore them they can't ignore us one way was the the so-called tpp approach which was the globalist approach that the obama administration sponsored which basically set up a huge trade agreement around china to create a competitor to China and and try to, through competitive forces, uh, 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 get them to behave in a different way. Uh, uh, Trump took a look at that approach and didn't like it. I mean, Trump and his advisors, they don't want this big multilateral institution, even though its purpose is to contain China. They want a direct confrontation, bilateral. uh, We have more uh, to gain and you have more to lose, uh, kind of. And that's the era we're in now. Uh, I I think it's at some point, realizing that both of those approaches haven't done the job, I think we're going to get back to some balance between a bilateral relationship with them plus multilateral containment in, in terms of setting up trade agreements around China where we're less dependent on them. And I think that blend will happen. But we sort of had to hit <laughs> both sides of, the extremes in terms of the approaches to and but that may take years i mean it is very tough right now there is very little trust between our countries and uh it's very important that we regain that trust for the u.s economy and u.s global companies and you know just one further answer in terms of adapting it, it reminds me a little bit of when the eu was set up and you know the walls went up around europe and and there was greater value to being an insider in that environment, an insider in Brussels, an insider in London. I think we're going to go through an era like that with China, where there's a there's greater value if companies can establish inside relationships because the countries aren't getting along.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that's uh, you know uh, we we both know so many companies doing business in China is 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 uh, is challenging. It's a it's a it's a not an easy market. So. That's going to be a, a, a tough trick for many companies as well.
1: If you think about, you know, Hank Greenberg, though, back 60 years ago with AIG, basically an insurance company set up in Shanghai during an era when the countries weren't had didn't even have diplomatic relationship. That's an extreme example of an unusual guy who did establish an inside position in the country and got all kinds of advantages because he did it. Some flavor of that, I think, is going to be some of the behavior we're going to see.
0: That's a great example because, obviously, as you know, he did uh, he did use that to great benefit for AIG, and they did have quite a position
1: to this day. It still advantages him in,
0: yeah. in China. That's right, uh, Jim. Uh, you know, moving from U.S. China, and you mentioned uh, relationships uh, both directly with China, and then you know, relationships around it. How does the the global trade system and the and the trade frameworks how, how do you see that proceeding from here it, you know is it these regional agreements or you know because again that was something that was almost a one-way track from 45 until the yeah. last decade and now it's it's heading in a different direction i i think this
1: is one one of these things where you have to start with the answer which is we do need global cooperation i mean there's there's a big price to pay if walls go up everywhere and Countries are unable to take advantage of their strengths, as well as the advantages of other countries' strengths in in trading relationships. And so I think uh, there's a few organizations that I'm involved with that that are trying to think beyond, trying to think through and see beyond uh, the era we're in now of nationalism and populism and think about uh, how we can find this blended environment that I alluded to earlier with China, which is, have relationships with countries that, yes, can reflect bilateral elements that are critical, yet are tied into a global system, sort of a hybrid environment. And I, I, I'm i not a trade wonk uh, to the degree that I can tell you exactly what that looks like. But we really need to be focused on that. We really need to have a trading environment where the U.S.'s greatest strengths are global co- companies. Uh, Often technology-based uh, that can find markets and find consumers around the world. We cannot have, and we lose our competitive advantage if we live in a country-country bilateral-bilateral relationship, where global products, by definition, can't be produced because you got to produce one for a country in Europe and another for a country in Asia, and it's. Uh, and and that kind of global standardization is less available to you, and, and that erodes one of our big uh, competitive advantages. So we've we've got to fight our way to get to the other side, and it, it seems difficult now, but we will we will get there.
0: You know, it's amazing, Jim, isn't it, given uh, the trajectory of the last 30, 40, 50 years uh, in terms of increasing globalization, increasing opening up. Remember Tom Friedman's book, The World is Flat. Yeah. Uh, you know, and technology breaking down barriers everywhere. It's amazing. After all of that, we sit here today on the rainy day in the Northeast, and we're talking about the possibility of retrenching into individual countries. It's really remarkable.
1: Well, you, you're right, Greg, and, and it, that was only that was less than 20 years ago. His book, The World is Flat, You know, which pretended the totally global world that we're talking about. I think uh, I think part of the issue was the uh, the impact of digitization, globalization, on the indigenous populations of many countries, including ours, was more difficult than we we had anticipated. And uh, the the political leadership on both sides of the aisle could not figure out a way to talk to that 45% of the population, which was in some ways left, left behind, not just in our country, but in a lot of countries. I mean, that's the root of it. It's almost as if the world moved too fast and people weren't either well enough educated or weren't uh, emotionally prepared uh, to adapt. And, and so I think we're gonna have to go through this. it's a natural reaction what's happening now. We have to get through it and we have to get focused on education and trade agreements to r- raise up the population to meet that challenge.
0: I think your diagnosis is spot on. I mean, that's it. I mean, we didn't bring, not everybody came along for the, the ride. Yeah, and that's led in, in, in not just in this country, in the UK, and in other countries. Yeah. So Jim, uh, individual countries then, and we don't have to run through them all, but you have winners and losers now on a country basis. Once in a, in the world that we're going to kind of you know get our way through over the next ten or twenty years, you want to uh, comment on countries that are better positioned and worse positioned for the, the world of 2020 and out that we're talking about?
1: Well, I think uh, I think the countries that have broad-based uh broad-based industrial positions uh who don't rely inordinately on imports or exports uh who have a big straight on through to consumer economy in other words the full supply chain available to them like the united states is probably the best example uh will probably weather the storm a little better i think those countries that have narrower economies that depend on one or two industries and then they have to trade uh, uh, to, to, to get other kinds of competitive goods and services with other countries. Those are the ones that will find it more difficult uh, to navigate this world. And that's the whole theory of the case on you know global cooperation is that those more narrow economies can... Live and thrive through trade and comparative advantage. So I think they'll be the ones that struggle, and those are often developing countries. Those kind of countries are often developing.
0: Yeah, showing the importance for so many hundreds of millions or billions of people that we not allow the whole system right down into a you know nationalistic uh, basis.
1: It would be that. That's the way the world looked before World War One, where series of bilateral relationships and uh, every country to itself. And 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 that kind of environment leaves itself open to react overreacting to shocks, whether it's an Archduke getting shot <laughs> in the case of uh, World War I, or a pandemic where it surfaces uh, the fissures between the countries now. And we're not getting along perhaps as well as we all should in the midst of this pandemic. I hope we emerge from that with some lessons about how, I mean, these multilateral institutions are not perfect. The UN is not perfect. The WHO is not perfect. NATO is not perfect. But I think a reset is in order to get re-centered on the, the original purpose because they become bureaucratic and pe- people pay different amounts. And all. I think a reset is in order, but to get rid of them is a huge mistake.
0: Yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's really remarkable. And it's a fascinating analogy that you've drawn, uh, you know, back to pre-World War One, because it's basically a century, and a century later, with progress after World War II where they, you know, people just read a biography of Roosevelt and and hit the driving force in his mind behind things like uh, the United Nations was to, you know, avoid obviously a repeat of that or World War One, and to after all the progress over so many decades. So the dialogue that we're having today it's uh, it's it's both concerning and, and really remarkable that in 2020
1: yeah.
0: world where you've linked it together so you and I can talk on video uh, through a, a tropical storm and and you know at the same time they'll be worried about uh, the drivers of what created you know world wars in the past it's uh, it's remarkable yeah. Jim, let's transition. Uh, I could talk to you about this for, for uh, hours, given your experience and your, your thinking on it, but uh, let's transition to the uh, commercial airline industry because sure. you have expertise there. Um, I, I read, and I'm not by any means an expert here, but Airbus just laid off 10,000 employees. Boeing's got obvious challenges. What is the future for commercial aircraft? Uh, you know, And we can get to the consumer side, which I'll be curious what you think there, how... Much and how frequently people will travel again and when, but the the these massive incredible companies that make the uh, make the planes. What's the future for that industry?
1: I, I think the uh, the short and medium term will be very very difficult. Uh, I think the long term will be okay. Just to 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 highlight it, I think tourism will eventually come back. It's it's all about human nature and all about. Uh, the experience, and uh, and I think uh, business travel will also eventually come back, although it will be supplemented by virtual tools when when uh, and and what exactly that mix will be is hard to predict. could there could be a long-term impact on the growth rate of business travel as a result of that. But it's every time we've gone through one of these things, it's always returned. I think the difference this time is it's going to take a little longer. and and to your point, Greg, and, and you you implied it in your question, the layoffs at places like Airbus and, and Boeing and United Airlines, you saw the kind of uh, employee dislocation they were talking about. You know, uh, it's one thing to talk, to say that the industry is gonna be back fine in five to seven years, but you lost your job, you know, four years ago. I mean, it's tough. And so, there is no doubt there will be a, a big impact just on the business structures of uh, both the technology providers like Airbus and Boeing uh, and the uh, airlines. But the question will be how long, and and I, I think the, the shape of uh, when it comes back will not be too different than the shape it is today. There may be some different business combinations that make sense, I don't know, but it's uh, it'll just be an awful thing a difficult thing to live through, and so which then gets on to the to the next thing, and I'll I'll just say it out loud, which is we got to put this country back to work. Uh, we've we've got we've got to learn to manage and innovate around the impact of this virus. We can't be held hostage by it, and th- the better we're able to accomplish that. Uh, the faster the economy will start to grow and the faster some of these heavily damaged uh, industries back to your original question like uh, airlines and, and uh, airplane manufacturers will be will get going again
0: I completely agree with you on that uh, uh, what what about the the consumer side the, the willingness to get on a plane and, and your expertise granted comes from from actually making the planes but you have yeah. also uh, seen, you know, some of your biggest clients were were the airlines for years. You know a lot about how an airlines run. Um, you know, I, I see these surveys that say, "I'll eat outside at a restaurant now." Basically, you know, most people uh, I, I'll go inside maybe in several months, but I'm not getting on a plane even if there's half the number of people for a longer period of time. Do, do you think? I, I've always I've been cautioning people because I lived through credit crisis, September 11th. All the yeah. predictions that came out immediately, many of which were not true, uh-huh. uh, but but in terms of individuals being willing to get on planes and and travel much like they used to, how and when do you think that unfolds?
1: I, I think uh, I think you got to divide it into pre-vaccine and post-vaccine. I think pre-vaccine uh, there will be impairment. I mean it's. It's not just getting on the plane. It's walking through the airport. It's being screened. It's being in this place where where an uncontained number of thousands of people are all in, the, in a terminal together. You just don't know uh, the plane. If you're on the plane with a mask, I mean, the air is changed every three or four seconds. I mean, it's uh, it's a very the the air management on an airplane is is pretty good, but it's. Uh, uh, but I think it will all struggle and they're they're back up, Greg, I think, I think I just was on a call the other day. They're back up to between 25 and 30 percent of where they were pre-COVID, which is still extremely low. OK, and it's just creeping up slowly. And so you just can't imagine this getting much past 50 percent. I'm making it up. I really don't know. Just looking at the trend line, getting much past 50 percent. Until either there is a therapeutic solution that uh, has a lot of bite to it, or there's a vaccine, and your guess is as good as mine. There's a lot of discuss, uh, and uh, you know, estimates range from the end of this year to the end of next year. But once those therapeutic or vaccine vaccination solutions are in hand, then I think then I think you're back into environment and environment post financial crisis post. Uh, 9-11 post uh, Gulf War in the early 90s where it tended to take about 18 months to, to come back. So I, I don't know how else to think about it. Yeah. 18 yeah. months from that point,
0: you from know. That. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That part, yeah, I remember I was, uh, I was working at Booz in Hamilton in the early 90s uh, during the first Gulf War and was one of five people on a, on a jet from London to New York uh, <laughs> that had 350 empty seats. So this has happened before. Yeah, uh, and ultimately yep. it is a question of duration. Jim, there's a there's a, um, a a bit of a chicken and an egg, or maybe not. I'm not again an expert on airlines, but it seems to me um, that they're they're also running fewer flights. And, yep. and this get into the economics of airlines. Maybe they don't. You know, if there's only ten people on the plane, you don't want to pay for the fuel. But um, you know, a you don't have the ten people, and then if there were ten other people thinking about it, it, it are the airlines thinking? they' They're going to try to start drawing people in, or is that just uh, too difficult a to task right now?
1: No, I think they' I think they're working hard to uh, create and portray a safe environment. Uh, and each airline is innovating that equation a little bit differently. The airlines are working very hard with airports and the FAA to come up with protocols uh, for testing uh, uh, at the TSA point, for example. Uh, management of of spacing in airports. They're working very hard to sort of have the minute you get out of the cab until the minute you get in into the cab at your destination that they're that people feel more comfortable. And I and I think that will have an impact. And they're uh, and some airlines are doing that more creatively than others, uh, but all of them have got. I, again, I'm making up the number just based on what I read in the newspaper. All of them got around 50 or 60 percent of the fleet grounded temporarily, and they're flying 40 to 50 percent at very low load factors. And and that's part of the deal uh, with some of the financial arrangements that are being offered by Washington, which is you keep a certain number of planes in the air so that you know we can we can all do business. But that'll have some impact. But until there's a vaccine, as I said before. That will be incremental and slow and it will be steadily upward, but uh, I don't see it getting you much, much past 50, 55% until you get, you get a, a therapy in place. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, another topic, which is an extension of this one is uh, post COVID-19 changes. And you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. Yeah. In fact, one of the things you said to me is that um, uh, COVID-19 in many ways, is accelerating changes that were already taking place. Uh, a across the economy, and more specifically in terms of jobs and employment. Can can we talk a little bit about that? The, sure. the, sure. the impact of uh, COVID-19 on accelerating things that were already moving.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there is uh, there is no question that that virtual solutions, digital solutions, uh, data analytics solutions are moving faster. I mean, th- there's always an uh, adaptation curve for these new technologies. People have to get trained, people have to get used to it. People have to be comfortable with the answers that are produced by these new technologies. But I, in my opinion, about five years worth of progress happened over the last two months. And, 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 and it's very simple. Necessity is the mother of invention. I mean, that that's why. I mean, tele- telemedicine made a huge step forward. The technology was available, but, how the doctor got paid that hadn't been thought through uh the uh the, the how do you categorize the procedures for hipaa and medicare and medicaid all the enablers hadn't really been thought and those are the things that were holding up the adoption uh, of the uh, of the technology uh the um uh education higher education everybody's going right in the middle of it right now how much virtual how much physical? how do we figure out a way to capture the 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 value of education in a virtual environment maybe even make it better because you're you're taking the best of whatever you're trying to teach and can get it out to more people and it could be more productive and but you got to do it in a way that parents are still going to want to pay for, for the education so it's they're going through that but i'm convinced on the other side of that is going to be real innovation in the way in the way uh, education is delivered uh, retail look how look at the uh, you know e-commerce was already you know what i i don't know great 20 of the uh of the retail environment it's gotten to 35 in a hurry and that's not going to slow down anytime soon so those are three examples of, of uh accelerated change that i don't think is going to come back i think it's all three of those are going to end up better more productive uh and more efficient and so I think the end product here is is uh, innovation. Good
0: innovation. I, I completely agree with you. Those are great examples too. And I, I'm a bit of an armchair expert on education because I've got two uh, two kids at home who are in college and and going back. Um, and And part of what this has done is also forced decision making. There's a lot of talk about online education. The limitations of online education are now dramatically evident for everybody. I, hate, I hear it at, at home from my two kids and their friends. Um, but there will be aspects of remote, as you're saying, Jim, that are going to be brought in. And, you know, so so things that were being tried out that don't make sense are going to be shelved, Things that do make sense are going to be incorporated. So, I, you know, it, it, but because of that, and I think this is one of the things you're talking about, you're looking at a different world in lots of ways in as soon as five or 10 years. Isn't that what you think?
1: I think so. I think so. And, and it's... It... And again, to your to your earlier point, it's an acceleration of what would would have happened, but we needed we needed to do it, and so we're going to get there faster. It's good entertainment. I mean, I, I think the last thing that will go back to normal will be seventy five thousand people in a football stadium, or or four thousand people in, in the Kennedy Center uh, watching some live performance. That's very difficult to manage. So, you know, how will how will entertainment be presented? I mean, uh, and there's all kinds of technologies that can enhance entertainment, entertainment from virtual reality to uh, other forms of digitization that that uh, where and there, as you know, there's a whole world, uh, you know, of gaming and other things that already very sophistic in very sophisticated ways bring a million people together for an entertainment event. You and I are too old to even know about. But those are going to get adopted in more conventional environments. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating. It's going to be fun. Yeah,
0: yeah. that's uh, The that's entertainment is uh, right. is is spot on. I mean, I'm I'm involved with uh, with the Marlins on baseball, and you know we're going to be out with the 60 game season, but you know no fans. And I hear that tennis is coming, because yeah, tennis, if if you don't put fans in a stadium for tennis, and you've got Federer playing doll, there's really minimal risk. Uh, anywhere around and you're going to have literally tens of millions of people watch that match. They're going to have to adjust to no noise. Right. But, uh, it is the, the changes that are going to be wrought on a faster basis. This is your theme. I'm just agreeing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, over the next 10 years, significant. Um, Jim, one of the maybe more challenging parts of this, though, is employment and jobs because we uh, yeah. end up with technology Uh, either taking over or making jobs uh, in certain industries less, less, uh, less relevant. Uh, So how do you see the, you know, one of the nice things about where we were at the end of February was basically a post-World War II, uh, low in unemployment, high in jobs, high in jobs across the uh, spectrum, you know, I think um, African-American employment was as high as it's been in, in a very long time at the end of February. How do we make sure that we're 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 dealing well with that side of the equation? I
1: think this will be, you've got, our, you've got your finger on our toughest challenge, in my opinion, because remember when you and I were discussing a few minutes ago about people getting left behind, okay? You know, in terms of the tools they need to compete in a globalized environment. This is, now that we've taken this big step forward, that situation is going to be exacerbated. This, now that we've accelerated all these things, and I, I happen to be one of these guys who believes that uh, all forms of education are going to have to be reformed in order to respond to this challenge. Higher education, uh, particularly community colleges and what you call trade education, uh, will have to become basically education and managing digitization. Uh, and, and I mean, I'll, I'll use Boeing as an example. We, we require a great dear, deal of digital capability uh, for the people, uh, not, not just the engineers, but the actual assembly people who put together airplanes. There's You've got to be able to handle a digital interface to find parts and to get them together and all the rest of it. We could not, the educational environment could not produce people fast enough. We basically set up our own college. We basically set up our own training capability uh, and and would, would dedicate six to eight weeks to do that. I think companies are going to have to do that more and more. So I think we cannot wait for education to totally restructure itself, even though I think it has to. Uh, and we've got to get back to teaching kids stuff, in my opinion, in higher education. <laughs> and it's, uh, can't wait for that to all happen, even if it does. I think companies are going to have to have items in their in their budget line, which is we've got to train our own people in the basic stuff for the new world here, and uh, it's going to be it's going to be a tremendous challenge. It's the biggest challenge. Yeah,
0: yeah. You think we take a page, maybe, if if we look at countries that do some of this really well, this might be a page out of the Germans' uh, playbook. They exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Exactly. The, the not only their uh, non four year college. Way of training, but the the apprenticeship thing, the whole the Mattel. I I can't say the right German word, but it's uh, it's and that's the concept I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, uh, Jim. What about uh, on on a slightly uh, lighter note, but also relevant, I think, ultimately to employment, uh, to the way cities are set up. So infrastructure, this remote work. Uh, you know, what what parts of this? Uh, you know, because you, you you were talking about technology and, and the trends that were in place accelerating. Uh, the the remote work has worked for many companies better than anybody could have anticipated. I've been thrilled, and my colleagues have been very pleased at, uh, at Rockefeller with how well the, the technologies worked. Um, how much of the remote work stays? Uh, does it change the way that, that, that the people... You know, there's there was the Economist ran a piece saying why you know the the hours in the day might be shorter. You need a five-day week. I mean, this the remote work has opened up a lot of dialogue about uh, reconfiguring things that have been around for at least 70 or 80 years. Any, any thinking on this?
1: Well, I think obviously it depends on industry and uh, competitive environment. Right? There, there, you can imagine some some kinds of industries where uh, that have to be personally delivered, where you have to be there to make something. I mean, that there'll be uh, impact around the edges. But it'll all get down to can you create a competitive advantage? You know if if you uh, if if thirty to thirty five percent of your workforce can stay at home and be as effective, if not more effective. if you need ten percent less of your workforce, Overall, which some people are discovering now, uh, by digitize, digitizing some elements of the sales process or digitizing some elements of the testing process in in if you're manufacturing something where remote tools can enable you to do it, if it creates a competitive advantage, it's going to be adopted. And I I was on a call the other day with uh, a group of uh, a large group of CEOs uh, and. I think the average is everybody went around the room. About 25 percent will stay virtual, as far as they can see. Uh, that they are learning how to be more productive than they thought they would be by the acceleration of a lot of a lot of the digitization that we described earlier, and that they're going to be leaner and faster and more competitive as a result of having gone through this. I mean, everybody, I'm reflecting. Some of that optimism in the way I think about it because I can think of companies I've run that having gone through this will emerge more competitively but I I think and I think the United States different than many other countries we have a strong enough government we have a reserve currency uh, we can bridge people to the other side not every country can do that we're very lucky I mean we're going to and people use the term advisedly print Eight trillion dollars before we're done to help people get through to the other side. Many of much of this is support and, and lending that will come back, but a lot of it isn't. And it's uh, we're very fortunate to have that. The other side can be very promising.
0: Jim, are there on the other the 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 uh, the, the industries that are best able to get to the other side, and then those that you think might be most challenged? Maybe you could talk a little bit about you. you you've talked about. Uh, it sounds like for some industries you think it's a tailwind. For other industries, they're going to have to restructure and adapt.
1: Yeah, I think I, I think of the retail environment, which paradoxically is the one that's going through the toughest time. But I think people are going to emerge with totally different models on how to buy everything from clothing to food to food to, and it's it's uh, and I'm not exactly sure what they look like. Uh, but they're going to look more like my 24-year-old's uh, experience in dealing with retail than mine. And companies that get there and they make people comfortable buying a suit online because the digital tools that that size you and and uh, and give you the ability to uh, visualize what you would look like in a real environment, sort of a VR-type environment, uh, Th- th- those are going to be the winners, and so the ones that are going through the toughest time, I think there's more space for innovation, longer term. Uh, and uh, I think uh, medicine, I already mentioned, I think is going to change. Uh, I think it's going to change dramatically, and uh, they'll be they'll be manufacturing. Um, I think uh, uh, the a Boeing will won't will change will accelerate but not change fundamentally the use of the tools to make things. But uh, I think the uh, chemically based companies, additive manufacturing, where you're literally printing things, a lot of light industrial and and consumer products, there's going to be a dramatic, that is accelerating incredibly quickly because you can do it without inventory and without people. That promise was already there in front of us. We already knew on paper, but now, now people understand that uh, if they want that safe environment and they want to win, they've got to accelerate that.
0: Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't uh, uh, I wouldn't put you or really anybody on the spot on stock market and valuations for different companies. But this is this fits in you, you, your view in, in, in looking at the some of the larger market trends is that that's what's going on where companies for whom this is going to be a tailwind have have been traded up the most. And, you know, companies that are, are are lagging are those that that are going to have to adapt to the accelerating change brought by COVID-19. I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not
1: sure the market knows exactly who the winners are on the adoptee side, but they know that the tech providers, NASDAQ, they know they're going to be providing the tools and capabilities to whomever. Those are the guys that are really getting bit up right now, as, as you pointed out in our last call. I mean, the, the decoupling of NASDAQ and Dow is what that's all about, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. Jim, what about, um, it's a big world out there. And, uh, you know, I want to come back to the United States and, and, and the possibility, hopefully, the reality of continuing leadership. But what about some of the other parts of the world against this, the, the, some of the things we're talking about here, including accelerating change? Uh, you've done a lot of work in in Europe. You 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 know uh, those countries and the way they're uh, formulated. Well, we talked about one of the countries with a great strength, the German uh, labor training model. Yeah. Uh, how how does the future look in you know the, the in, in places like the EU, for example? I mean, are they will there be enough adaptation to allow them to to continue to move forward?
1: Uh, I th- I think they will adapt. I mean, there. They're fundamentally strong countries with enough financial strength to help bridge them to the other side. They have a; uh, it, it doesn't have the same status of a, of a reserve currency as the dollar does, but it's 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 got status. And uh, I think the inflexibility of their labor will will mean that it takes a little longer. Uh, I think the uh, uh, the I don't want to say they don't have globally competitive co- uh, companies in Europe. They they truly do have globally, co- but not as not as broad based as as the U.S. Uh, and so uh, it'll just th- they will get back to where they were and then further. I just think it'll take a little longer, and and there may not be quite as much growth available to Europe if the past is prologue as as there is to the United States that has a culture and a regulatory environment that allows us to adapt a little quicker.
0: You know, and and, um, some of this comes across, uh, uh, you know, I think um, balanced with uh, your uh, realistic assessment of all the challenges here, but you feel pretty good about the United States today in in terms of our ability to uh, adapt to the the changes we're we're talking about and to continue to provide a leadership role for a long time to come, hopefully. Is that a fair statement? I
1: I think I I personally feel... That that that's the worst case. That we'll stay where we are. I think I think we have a, a, a an opportunity to uh, further distance ourselves from other countries. Quite frankly, it, and it's sort of a uh, adding up the things we've talked about. I mean, it's uh, got a broad and deep economy that is less susceptible to uh, the, national, the impact of nationalism around the world. It's got a financial Capability and willingness to bridge people to the other side. The fundamental innovativeness of of that part of our economy uh, is quickly addressing uh, the problems. We have labor flexibility that allows us to move from one to another. The, The piece where we're where we're slow as molasses in the Yukon is the education. And that's that to me is a real gating. Piece here to pr- tool up our population uh, and get and get many of our schools back to the business of teaching folks. I think that, that's a big opportunity for us.
0: Yeah, Jim, I, and I know this is another place that you've actually spent a lot of time, and you sit on the board of Northwestern, and um, uh, and, and we talked about companies maybe stepping in and doing some specific training. Yeah. but you know, in education, you know, K to 12, and then in the university environment. You know, what are some of the things that you you uh, would see changed as we head into the 20s and 30s here?
1: Well, uh, look, um, I'm one of these guys uh, who thinks that higher education is one of the fundamental advantages this country has got. At the same time. I think it has lost its way in a couple of different ways. It's. uh, the the campus environment is way too politicized, in my opinion. I'm speaking as an individual now. Uh, there is there is more politics than teaching going on in some of uh, in, in some places, and uh, and I think the student loan program, uh, with all the money that it's through the students who can't pay it back, all this money has flowed through to these institutions that have made them a little more bureaucratic and insulated. And I I think we have to uh, uh, we have to rejuvenate uh, uh, higher education, an incredible strength for our country, against the mission of preparing our kids for tomorrow's environment, which is uh, which is gonna be about participating in our political system in a constructive way, not uh, a destructive way. It's having the tools to participate in a global economy it's these things and we can improve there and uh, I think we really need to and that's on top of the community colleges the trade schools that we need also need desperately we need we need a wholesale change and I, I don't want to sound too political myself here but I it's I think there's a big opportunity there
0: yeah yeah uh, I agree entirely including the whole cascading all the way down to community colleges and trade schools and uh and you know more of the german model uh, uh last topic uh, jim you've spent most of your life uh, uh a good part of uh you know the years at ge and 3m and boeing so we're talking about decades of leadership of very large uh very successful organizations um and and uh you know, uh, one of the things that, that I hear all the time today and I, I also agree with is the dearth of, of real good leadership everywhere, whether it be in, in uh, companies and in, in uh, academic institutions, not for profits, governments. And, and this is certainly not limited to the United States. What 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 uh, elements of, of good leadership in a world that's moving as quickly as it does now, where. Um, uh, you know, the, you, you mentioned the, the, you know, politicized environment. I mean, leadership requires you to step out and, and, and be clear on what you believe in. But, you know, that that carries, uh, uh, you know, risk today. And, uh, it, you know, the, the people like to lean on politicians, but it's not an easy time to have every word uh, scrutinized, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or an independent. So uh, what advice do you have for leaders wherever they might fall? Uh, somebody who's who's running a, a department in a school, or a school principal, somebody who's running a, an institution like Yale or Northwestern or the country or a company.
1: Well, it's 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 a tough question, Greg. Uh, the um, first of all, it's much more difficult to be an effective leader today than it was thirty or forty years ago when you and I were growing up. It was a simpler task. <laughs> We we had to win within our institutions. Uh, we had to be classically good leaders. Um, today uh, uh, there's incoming from every place on every topic, and uh, uh, and 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 you're always criticized by one side or the other. There's never there's never a place where c- compromise is a dirty word. Finding a middle of the road solution. Uh, often is unattractive in social media. And so it it is, it's difficult. I think it comes down, I think think the kind of leader that needs to respond in this kind of environment, A, has to have humility, uh, uh, has to understand that uh, his way is not the only way. uh, And in fact, be better at drawing ideas out of other people than having ideas him or herself. I think that kind of leader will do better in an environment where everybody's got an opinion and where there's a lot of constituencies that you have to satisfy. But that takes time, takes humility. It could be tough on the ego. Uh, I think this word uh, authenticity is overused, but the extent to which you come across as a person, uh, even if you're wrong in this kind of environment, uh, I think uh, serves you better to navigate this. I think the days of the command and control uh, I got the answer follow me over the hill. I think that kind of leadership just draws too much fire and lacks the credibility and the and the, the humility you need to deal with the kind of with a lot of different people who don't agree with you. Now that's sort of a long-winded answer, but there's in there is is something that I would say is a is the culmination of a trend over the last 40 years.
0: I thought that was a terrific answer. I mean, and, and I entirely agree with you that uh, it's a lot harder now than it ever was. And there's frankly nobody that I know in business or government or academia who disagrees with that sentiment. So I think it was a great answer. And I do think um, uh, the authenticity and the... Uh, the uh, collegiality, uh, making sure you're, you're leading in a lateral way as opposed right. to, you know, if you're not bringing those characteristics today, it's very hard to get people to follow you. But uh, and, and, the, and the authenticity is very key because uh, uh, if it's not, uh, you're going to be found out very quickly and, and you just can't, you, you, won't, you won't have them follow you.
1: No, very true. Very true, Greg.
0: Jim, you, uh, I'll give you a final word and then I've got a couple of quotations, although frankly, uh, given uh, how insightful you are on that topic, I could have pulled out many on leadership. But any, any final word you want to leave with us? Uh, it's been fantastic and uh, wide ranging in terms of the uh, the things that you've seen, the things that you've done, the leadership you've uh, had in place and the ability, frankly, having led these companies so well for so many years to sit here now and be able to say here are the challenges of today, and to be as accurate as we are, I give you huge credit for. So great to have you here. Uh, last word.
1: Yeah, Greg, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the discussion very much. I think uh, your way of going about this uh, brings out the best in people. So thank you for that. I, I uh, hey, look, I think the hardest thing to hold on to is is uh, a fundamental optimism about people, about your country. Uh, I think, uh, but it's at, it's, at the, it's at those times where you, when, when it really has to be held on to. It's a matter of faith. All the data says things are going to hell in a handbasket. That's, at the, time, that's the time you've really got to believe in yourself, your country, and uh, the people around you. And uh, we will succeed. I, I tried to make the case that, that the U.S. might even be advantaged coming through this environment. Uh, So I remain an optimist and uh, I think you brought that out of me in the interview and I appreciate that.
0: Well, that's terrific. Well, uh, uh, I share that optimism and you articulated it well, so it's uh, it's substantively based uh, and and therefore I think likely to be realized. But Jim, uh, it it was terrific to have you here. Uh, We've put this series together to bring to our clients unique insights that you frankly can't just go find elsewhere because um, Jim McNerney and the and the things you bring to bear uh, are so uh, specific to the career that you've had. So this is a service to our clients and our colleagues and friends of Rockefeller. Uh, so many thanks again, Jim, for being here. I uh, promised the quotations uh, uh, to send everybody on their way uh, and I had picked two because of some of the things that Jim's done with his career. And I have a third I'm gonna throw in because of Jim's final thought, uh, but, uh, Jim uh, ran companies very well that were very complicated, very global. And in order to do that, you have to have both vision slash strategy and execution. And Thomas Edison said uh, very famously, quote, vision without execution is just hallucination. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: So you have both pieces of that. Uh, another thing that you've done with your life, uh, 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 Mandela, uh, who's one of my favorite to quote, because he's so, uh, he lives such an amazing life. Uh, But Mandela said, uh, quote, there is no passion to be found in playing small, in settling for a life that is less than what you are capable of living, end Mm -hmm. quote. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, Jim McNerney certainly went for it in everything that you've done. And I'll add in and I'll close with this, and this is a good way for us to to go spend uh, uh, the weekend, all of us, Uh, Ernest Shackleton very famously said, and this is Jim's last point, optimism is true moral courage. Mm -hmm. So uh, optimism for Shackleton, Shackleton, optimism was leadership. Uh, And that's what uh, Jim just said. So, Jim, many thanks again for being here uh, and uh, all the best to everybody listening for a great weekend. Uh, I'll turn it back to uh, Tom to wrap it up. Thank you to Greg and to our guest Jim McNerney for all of their unique insights and perspectives. And thank you all for joining today's event. This concludes our program. Thank you all again for attending and from all of us at Rockefeller Capital Management, please have a safe and healthy weekend.